Sydney Environment Institute presents the Environmental Justice 2017 Conference Keynote Conversation 8, Culture, Food and Health, with Chair Alana Mann and speakers Amida Bavaskar and Viliamu Iese. Good morning. I'd also like to acknowledge and pay my respect to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and our previous panel, I think really did acknowledge and pay respect in an especially moving and eloquent way. So thank you so much because I think that was a wonderful panel to preface uh, our next panel on culture, food and health, which I'm delighted to chair. I'm Alana Mann, I'm the Chair of Media and Communications at the University of Sydney and I'm proud to be a key researcher in the Sydney Environment Institute with the team working on a number of projects that I know have been explored in this conference. So our previous panel discussed, as I said, so fittingly, the relationship between culture and country. Uh, indigenous models of resilience show the clear relationship between culture, food and health. So thank you, Kyle and Sean, for that. I know in my own work, researching food sovereignty movements, including La Via Campesina, particularly in Latin America, I've seen the effects and the ongoing impacts, the echoes of colonisation on entire societies and particularly food systems and systems of agriculture and fisheries. So our two speakers today, I'm delighted to introduce them. They're going to speak about how diets have changed in their specific countries, regions, India and the South Pacific. These changes, despite some material gains, appear to have been for the worst. I was shocked to hear from one of our speakers that non-communicable diseases are now responsible for up to 70% of deaths in the South Pacific. So how does um, overnutrition and non-communicable disease also affect culture in profound ways? So our two speakers are Amita Bavaskar from the Institute of Economic Growth, Delhi, and Viliamu Aisi of the University of the South Pacific. I apologise if I got the pronunciation wrong. <laughs> and um, our first speaker will be Amita. And I'd like to introduce her. Amita is Professor of Sociology at the Institute of Economic Growth in Delhi. Her research focuses on the cultural po politics of environment and development in rural and urban India. Her first book, In the Belly of the River, Tribal Conflicts Over Development in the Narmada Valley, and other publications, explore the themes of resource rights, popular resistance, and discourses of environmentalism. She's currently studying food and agrarian environments in Western India. Her recent publications include edited books, Contested Grounds, Essays on Nature, Culture, and Power, Elite and Everyman, the Cultural Politics of the Indian Middle Classes with Raka Ray, and First Garden of the Republic, Nature on the President's Estate. Amita has taught at the University of Delhi, has been a, a visiting scholar at Stanford, Cornell, Yale, Sciences Po, and the University of California at Berkeley. She was awarded the 2005 Malcolm Adeshira Award for Distinguished Contributions to Development Studies and the 2008 VK RV Rao Prize for Social Science Research, as well as the 2010 Infosys Prize for Social Sciences. 
please join me in welcoming Amita Bavaskar. Thank you also, David Schlossberg, for, and the Sydney Environment Institute for inviting me here. And I would also like to acknowledge the traditional guard, custodians of this country and their connection to this landscape. From the perspective of environmental justice, any discussion of culture, food, and health in India has to begin by noting the persistence of poverty, hunger, and malnutrition as well as a deepening of social and economic inequalities. Within this frame, I'm going to focus on two issues. The first is common to India and many other post-colonial societies, and that's the rising consumption of junk food. And the second is probably specific to India, which is the conflict around eating beef. I've chosen these issues not only because they are important in the context that I work in, but also to highlight that our conversations must be global as well as attentive to distinctive local features. India has experienced unprecedented economic growth since the 1990s when successive governments have adopted policies of, of market liberalization, attracting capitalist investors by giving them great deals of subsidized land, minerals, tax holidays, cheap and compliant labor. And these policies have indeed created great wealth for some Indians, but they've also created a large and growing middle class that aspires to consume on par with the global north. The top 5% of Indians drive cars from their air-conditioned homes to air-conditioned offices, they plan holidays abroad, they eat New Zealand apples, and they shop for Australian oats. However, most of their fellow citizens live with chronic hunger, desperately trying to eke out their next meal, feeling helpless anger as their children cry for food. India's richest 10% holds 370 times the share of wealth that the poorest 10% holds. And this segment, this richest 10%, has been growing steadily richer and it now owns nearly three quarters of all wealth in the country. And this obscene inequality isn't happenstance. It's not an unintended side effect of liberalization. The roots of economic growth in India lie in accumulation by dispossession. And if you're thinking, but what about information technology and business processing? Surely that's not dispossessed anyone. You should know that um, IT employs only 4% of India's working population and contributes only 7% of total GDP. The human and ecological toll that economic liberalization has taken, the displacement and destruction of habitats because of mines and dams and ports and nuclear reactors and special economic zones, as well as the fierce social movements against them, provide the context for my remarks here on culture, food, and health. The UNDP's Human Development Index places India 133rd among 188 countries. Just for comparison, Australia is second on that list. And if we look specifically at hunger and malnutrition, the figures are far worse. 
UNICEF reports that 47%, almost half of all Indian children under five years show signs of chronic malnutrition and um, they're underweight, they have, uh, they're much more uh, liable to disease. And this figure is far higher for girls, for children in so-called tribal areas, and among historically oppressed scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. While children's access to nutritious food has improved a little bit with daycare centers and with um, government programs like school midday meals, these schemes don't address a fundamental issue, which is that parents can't provide adequate food at home because they don't own assets or earn incomes that enable them to either grow or buy food. Economic prosperity has brought material wealth in many ways. Economic growth has uh, brought mobile phones, television sets, motorcycles. But, that's not, but it's not always led to an improvement in nutrition. Since 1960s, when the government invested in the Green Revolution, a package of hybrid seeds, irrigation, synthetic fertilizers, and pesticides, India has been self-sufficient in wheat and rice, and that's what gets supplied at subsidized prices across the country. Eating polished rice has led to an epidemic of type 2 diabetes among rural as well as urban working class populations. And this food regime, backed by the international fossil fuel agrochemical complex, has edged out more nutritious and ecologically more sustainable cereals like the numerous varieties of locally grown millets. Even more worrying is the steep rise in mass manufactured, highly processed in industrial foods like biscuits and instant noodles made with that glut of wheat and rice. And shiny plastic packets of these commodities are everywhere thanks to multinational corporations' brainwave of selling small, affordable units of, these, of their products in low-income areas, a strategy called finding the fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. My current research is on Nestle's Maggie Noodles, a product wildly popular with children, adolescents, and young adults. Why is it so popular? Like other packaged junk foods, Maggie is the brand of modernity, and that means a lot in a sharply unequal country where food practices are divided by class, caste, region, and gender. For poor, provincialized, low-caste, or tribal youth whose home-cooked food is stigmatized, sneered at, and avoided by upper-caste people, eating Maggie is a part of a social aspiration to consume like affluent Indians, as advertised by film stars on television, to be a bit more like them. Deprived of so much else, their desire to eat these fun, glamorous foods is a mode of seeking consumer citizenship, displaying that one belongs to the dominant food culture of the nation. The second issue I'm going to briefly touch upon is the ongoing controversy in India around the consumption of beef, and by extension, meat in general. Most Hindus, as you probably know, regard cows as sacred. So the fact that many Indians, Christians and Muslims, scheduled caste and scheduled tribe communities eat cows has long been a thorn in the flesh of Orthodox Hindus. When a Hindu nationalist government came into power in 2014, 
Um, we've seen a rise in incidents where vigilante Hindu cow protection groups have attacked Muslims, beating and even killing them over trumped up charges that they were transporting cows for slaughter or keeping beef in their homes. And this brutal cultural policing is part of a campaign to homogenize diets towards vegetarianism, uh, which is a preferred diet of upper caste Hindus. And while vegetarianism may make environmental sense in many contexts, including as a way of fighting global warming, within India's caste stratified and religiously plural society, it serves only to deprive poor people of protein-rich food that they need and enjoy. Cows have traditionally been crucial to an agrarian economy powered by bullocks and fertilized by cow manure, and to diets in which milk products have been a major source of protein and fat. Today, India is the world's largest producer of milk. Keeping cows as working animals, of course, also means killing them when they grow old or unproductive, killing male cows because they don't give milk. So a flourishing cattle trade, mainly controlled by Muslims, has, become, has, has always accompanied dairying. And yet, because Hindu nationalist fanatics see beef as a stick to beat Muslims into submission, we have government policies that restrict cattle trade, which has already started hurting the agrarian economy. And herds of starving cattle roam the countryside, let loose by farmers who can't sell them, a sad end to a supposedly sacred animal. So these two examples of the connections between culture, food, and health raise complex challenges for our work on environmental justice. Food is not only about biological nutrition within an ecological context, but also about cultural desires, identities that speak to one's heritage and to imagined futures. It's about individual choices and collective modes of being and belonging. In a context where these aspects of food are shrewdly assessed and strategically deployed by powerful multinational corporations who not only, not only cater to, but in fact create what people want, the struggle for food that's environmentally and culturally just is harder than ever. At the same time, what we're fighting against is not just global capitalism, but national movements that emphasize homogeneity and assimilation to a dominant norm. Agrarian localism, or support for growing and eating millets, as well as other fruit, vegetable, and meats looked down upon as peasant and wild foods, is now emerging as a fashionable alternative, a lifestyle statement by Indian elites even as these foods are less and less available to the people who depended on them and who also today desire them much less. Such ironies about the commodification of elements of endangered cultures occur across the world. Indigenous peoples' textiles, art, music, and other artifacts circulate as fetishized precious objects, while the conditions of possibility for their production, indeed the communities that create and nurture them, are erased. For environmental justice, we must support the struggles of those who strive to live and eat with dignity and pride, which means fighting for land, water, and forests, and the nutritious traditions that flow from them, as well as demanding government policies that respect cultural diversity, as well as social equity. Thank you. Thank you, Amita. Uh, very important to foreground livelihoods there, which I think was um, a very important point 
particularly from a food sovereignty perspective. So uh, it is my pleasure now to introduce our second speaker, Viliamu Aisi. Had a second try at that is a Samoan Research Fellow at the Pacific Centre for Environment and Sustainable Development at the University of the South Pacific in Fiji. He is also undertaking part-time PhD research on developing a crop model that can assess the impacts of climate change on sweet potato in the Pacific. He has undertaken numerous research projects and consultancies on issues related to climate change adaptation, disaster risk reduction and food security, including a project documenting traditional and modern risk reduction practices in agriculture in Fiji with FAO. He has also led a team with UNESCO to develop a toolkit for evaluating loss and damage from climate change impacts on agriculture and tourism, which was trialled in five Pacific Island countries and Timor-Leste. He's a member of the Pacific Food Security Cluster for post-disaster assessments and recovery planning, and currently the Pacific representative for a multi-region study assessing risks to and from community food systems. So please join me in welcoming Moana. Oh, yeah, it's working. Um, yep. Um, first, uh, due respect to the land and her people and uh, nations of Australia, Mbulavinaka, Talofalava, and Tulo, Tulo, Tulo Nalava. It's an honor to be here today, actually. Um, uh, I was talking about leadership in climate change. Uh, Fiji is now chairing the COP23 uh, in Germany. Um, I probably the first time a small island state uh, lead the COP. So it's, it's quite an honor, and I'm quite very proud of that. And if you look around uh, uh, the room and also hear the news and everything, the Pacific Island countries are actually the lead advocates of climate change. But I'm not here to talk about climate change because... In the Pacific, it's kind of redundant. Everything is climate change. Everything is climate change. So, but I, I was supposed to be there um, to launch the, the toolkit, uh, the loss and damage toolkit with UNESCO, I think this week. But I decided to come and attend uh, the environmental justice conference. And I'm really, really glad um, I'm here today um, and also yesterday and Monday because finally I understand what the hell the Paris Agreement is all about. So... <laughs> Thank you very much uh, to the organizers uh, for allowing me to, to be here. Um, my presentation, I'm going to talk about um, culture, food, and health, and the relationship between culture, food, and health from the Pacific Island uh, context. And before I speak about it uh, first, I will try to explain how drunk we are with confusion and how bad the hangover of colonialism has done in our Pacific region. So it's really, really bad. And um, I'm going to elaborate that later. But first and foremost, Jia, if you could allow me two minutes just to give a Pacific Islands 101 uh, explanation because I will speak about these countries. And in Australia, people are asking me, where are you from? I said, I'm from Fiji. And then they said, is it next to Argentina? I said like, hello. More than 50% of your rugby players come from the Pacific Island countries, man. Come on. 
So, um, for your information, this is the Pacific Island uh, region. It's about 30 uh, million square kilometers of ocean, covering about one-third of our planet, of our Earth, about 28 countries, 550,000 square kilometers of land. Geopolitically, as I told you, we, have, we are suffering a huge hangover from colonialism, and we are confused uh, as well. So first, if you look at this, it's including independent countries. Samoa was the first country to gain independence in 1962. So all of those countries are younger than us, of course. Uh, we always say we are the, the original Pacific Islanders, and our descendants are the Maori. Um, so you can see that the French um, also run territories, the United States. We have countries who have been looked after by New Zealand, like the Cook Islands, Niue, and also countries who looked after by Australia, like Tuvalu, uh, Nauru, uh, Kiribati. And then we have the Kingdom of Tonga who claimed they were never conquered before. They were never colonized, but they were colonized by the Samoans. So, and then within the system itself, there are three sub-regions uh, within the Pacific. We have the Polynesian countries, like myself, uh, Polynesians, many small islands, many islands. And then we have the Melanesians, uh, the dark-skinned one, and then we have the Micronesians, uh, the scattered one on the north. And within the region, as I said, 550,000 square kilometers, about 90% of that landmass belongs to the Melanesian countries. Papua New Guinea, Fiji, Vanuatu, New Caledonia and about 10 million people within the Pacific, and about 90% of that population belongs to those, uh, come from those Melanesian countries. There's also a huge difference here, because we do have countries at about 26 square kilometers of landmass. It's probably Sydney University is bigger than my country of citizenship, Tuvalu. Five meters above sea level is the highest elevation. So when we speak about climate change, it's some serious shit to us. Yeah, so we really do care about that. And that is why our leaders are, are, are leading at the forefront. The other thing about the Pacific, it is more expensive to fly from Fiji to Tuvalu, which is two hours, than going to LA and back. Yep. And then if, you have, if I have to travel to Solomon Islands, I do need a visa. As if I'm going to the United States of America. Um, and the other thing about here, all our processed food and our imported foods are coming from Australia, New Zealand, China, Indonesia, Asia, some from the United States, and it's of really good quality. I'm kidding. <laughs> they send us probably the 10th grade out of the 5th grade. Anyway, so that is a little bit about the Pacific, but I, I will elaborate it more later. But let me go back to the topic um, today. I want to, to explain the relationship between this and looking backward to look forward. But I don't want us just to look forward. I want us to actually walk forward. Because if we keep looking back, look forward, look back, look forward, you get stuck like myself in the Pacific, confused. Traditionally, in, in our culture, in the Pacific, there is a very strong relationship between culture and food. Everything about food. Oh, yes, we do love our food. But the problem is there is no direct relationship between food and health, and also culture and health. Because in the Pacific, in our culture, like before colonialism, 
food was eaten or consumed for energy and also to enjoy. It's something we love to give us the energy to do the activities we, we had to do. So health, if you live a good life, good on you. It was never about getting thin or getting healthy or whatever. It's just about fueling yourself and enjoy the food. Culture and health is also different because health in, under the culture context, it doesn't belong to us. Health, like the weather, belongs to the courts. So we do pray for a good health. We do pray for a good weather. We don't eat for, a, we don't eat for good health. And we don't exercise for good health. So I want to bring this into your attention because I will go back to this later. There are some very key principles of culture in the Pacific Islands. Yes, with different Melanesian, Polynesian, and, and Micronesia, but there are principles of culture that bind all of us together. All right, and I want you to focus on this. First, it's a culture of everybody, communal, everyone before the individual, all right? And second, it's a culture of abundance. There is no lacking in the Pacific, everything is huge. If we eat a meal, like the meal we had last night, it was delicious, it was awesome, but not enough for myself. It's a culture of abundance, it's feasting, it's dancing, it's everybody together. We celebrate uh, the, the culture. And it's a culture of safety network. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. We work together, there is no I. All right, and then egalitarianism, everything is equal. Equal access for everything. Yes, it's, it's, it has paramount arrangements within the, the, the traditional covenant system, but the way we practice it, everybody look after everybody. So it's very important for us to realize this. Now let's go back. In the past, production was 100% local. And if you look at this, agriculture, fisheries, wild food, and also the, the kindness or the, the, what we, the, the, safety, the safety network. And I want to draw your attention to this. Because in the past, yes, health was not a direct objective, but everything we did was an exercise. If you look at going to the plantation, they walk, they climb the mountains, they climb the coconuts. They're doing all these physical exercises in order to, 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 to plant, to grow, and to get the food. Yes, so the plantation was our version of your gym. The ocean was our version of your swimming pool. So they paddle all the way beyond the reef. They go in every aspect of producing food. They, it was, um, what shall I say, very strong physical exercise. And you can tell how strong we are. We are the descendants of navigators, of those great, great explorers of the, of, uh, of the great blue ocean. Yeah, so we had wild uh, foods and then the social uh, network. I know these are some modern ones. I tried to look for the photos before the, ministry, before the missionaries arrived, and then I realized we did not have cameras in those times. <laughs> and then look at the consumption. There is also a pattern of consumption here. First, the preparation of food was also a very physical exercise. You have to go collect the firewoods, you have to come prepare, scrape the coconuts, scrape the taro and the breadfruit, 
put the fish inside the banana leaves, you climb the coconut, weave the basket, everything. There's always physical exercise. And then, uh, it's also involved both gender here, men and women. And that was probably an example of a food about 1,000 years ago. But the funny thing is, you can only find this at a hotel at a price of almost 200 US dollars. Yep, so it's, it's yummy, eh? And then the other important thing about the eating habits in the past. First, the content of the diet was like a lot of starch, some proteins, very few uh, vitamins. But there was an eating habit of, supplementary, of supplementing the diet. When they go to the plantation, they see a poor poor, they take it, they eat it. And then when they go uh, walk around there, they see a, a wild nut, um, they, they eat it. They go to the sea, they catch one, they eat it on the spot. So sometimes there is, a, there is an error in research now because they go and look at household consumption, what they are eating, and then they say the Pacific Islands eat very less vitamins. It's because they don't cover the supplementary type of, of eating uh, we have. And as a result, the, um, the explorers of the past say like the Pacific Islanders were like giants. Like they were huge, they were healthy, they were beautiful. I won't use the word sexy because the Samoans were sexy, but not the other Pacific Islanders. <laughs> so if you look at some of these photos and those archaeologists, uh, they say like when they take up 1,000 or 500 year old uh, bodies, the teeth are all full sets. The bones, very strong, strong bones. I can't tell you <laughs> what's happening now. But this is what they look like before. And probably this one as well. And I'm sure that you have heard of a lot of discussion on, on hashtag when this movie came out because they were saying like, that's Maui is too fat. And then other people say like, Maui, the bigger you are, the stronger you are. And for your information, that's my brother. And then now there is a shift. So now it's, it's, it's shifting nowadays. Their production is going down. Local production is going down. There is a huge invasion of processed foods are coming into the diet of the Pacific. There is no more any exercise. Everybody is going by car to their plantation or riding the horses. They are using outboard motors. They are not paddling anymore. Or sometimes they just buy the tin fish from the shop. There is a huge shift here. There's so much shift to processed food now. And the consumption, the eating habits of abundance is still there. There's still an eating habit of abundance. In the Pacific, the delicious, of the more delicious, like the indicator of how delicious the food is, is by the number of plates a person serves. That is a culture of abundance. And then like this one times five. And then you say like, wow, that was a very good meal. All right? And then the second part about it, I really like McDonald's. Sorry. The culture of uh, supplementing the diet is still there. The eating habit is still there. But instead of guava and popoas and all these other nuts and uh, traditional ones, we are supplementing our diets with noodles and a lot of twisties. And if you see a Pacific Islander walking on the road, in the islands, they always walk 
with a twisty and things like that. For myself, when I meet them, I say, like, share some with me, brother. And there's an impact of that. These are some of the health impacts. As our chair mentioned today, there's about 70 to 75% of deaths in the Pacific Island countries is due to non-communicable diseases. And when I speak of non-communicable diseases, they are lifestyle diseases. They are like um, hypertension or high blood pressure, heart diseases, overweight, uh, diabetes, and all, or diabetes or what they call in the islands, the sugar disease. Because they say like, uh, you have, you're diabetic because you have too much sugar in your blood. And the non-communicable diseases is also considered as the most urgent issue right now in the Pacific, much more urgent than climate change. Because right now, what is the use of fighting for adaptation when you lose all your capacities? Yep, so we train the people, and then if we are not going to address this eating habit, it's going to kill us much, much faster than climate change. And then <laughs> in one of the records, uh, seven out of 10 are the top 10 heaviest overweight people in the world are from Pacific Island countries. And the top five are from Pacific Island countries. And those, within those top five, they are all US territories. So, and 99% of, of most of the, the Pacific Island uh, health budgets are going to curing this, operating cut of the leg and all the other things. Very, very little on preventative. All right, and climate change, I just quote here John Barnett, Climate change makes the bad worse because it affects every aspect of the food system within the Pacific, as uh, Professor Barnett put it really, really well. I'm not going to talk about climate change. If you want to know more about it, we can talk about that later. So what I am bringing here to your attention is this. There are two types of intervention in the Pacific trying to address this. There are interventions from the production side of things, and there is an intervention from the health side of things. So production, agriculture projects, donor, uh, donors and all the developed worlds like these kind of uh, interventions. And then they say like, we increase local production because we assume that will increase the consumption of local food. But that's not always the case. Because they increase local production, the farmer or the fisher or the fisherman will sell the fish, sell the local lataro uh, uh, and buy the rice and the tin fish and save some money for some other uh, development and pay the school fee or buy the, the cover in Fiji. So that's the first thing. The other thing about this kind of strategy, it only favors those with access with, to land. So 60% of most of the Pacific Island uh, countries, 60% of the population are in the urban areas. So with very, very limited access to land. So this strategy favors only about 40% of our population. And it's also focused on few, few farmers and fishermen. It goes against the values of the culture, the communal, the communal um, aspect of things. And then it only targets some individuals. From the health perspective, they say, like, you eat nutritious food. Yeah, what is a nutritious food? And then if you go to the supermarket and go to the market, it's really, really expensive. It's more expensive than the minimum wage itself. So the interesting thing about that from the health perspective or the consumption um, approach, it only favors those with money and those with land. Low-income um, uh, households, you do whatever you want to do. And there's also a link between food and health. It's not strong, as I was talking about the culture. 
Because the health people come say, like, you have to eat this to get healthy. But in our perception, in our culture, it's already built inside. We eat to be strong, to, be, to, be, uh, to have the energy to do things, not, not to be healthy. And then it seems to be too extreme. Right? They say, like, uh, don't eat cassava, don't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this. And then the household said, and what I'm going to eat? That's the only thing I can produce is cassava. And then when they get angry, I tell you, they really do swear at the nutritionists. And they also the culture of individualistic. They say, go to the gym or go on diet. But that goes against the culture of togetherness. So what happens is when a person says, like, I'm on diet, everyone in the Pacific laugh at them. If I, if I go, when I go to my grandmother, I say, like, uh, grandma, I'm on diet. She goes, are you crazy? Yeah. And then um, there is also, there is no supporting a mechanism for dieting and going to the gym within the culture. Because mm. it's a culture of everyone. Because when you go to the gym, it's only you who just hang around there by yourself. Okay, and yeah, so there is an individualistic. And what I am trying to propose here is looking at the way forward. Because here we are still practicing our culture. Culture of abundance. We eat a lot of food and all of these things. So it's like we really want to go forward, but we're stuck. I am trying to propose here the way forward. I am not saying agriculture, stop, what are you doing? No. Do continue what you're doing. Health, continue what you're doing. You're doing, but find the right entry points. And the right entry point is consider cultural values within your approaches. Yeah, so, yeah. Communal gardens. Consider the, those who are living in urban areas. How do they have access to land? Facilitate that. And then civil society organizations work with faith-based people. Because if I said I'm on diet, everybody laugh at me. And if I say I'm on diet because I'm seven days Adventist, and then they say like, oh, yeah, 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 we understand. Because I do belong to a community. It's not because of my own benefit. It's because I belong to a community. So it's a very important thing to, to consider. And the communal approach of farming is not just few households. Enter through the traditional covenant system. Work with the chiefs, work with the churches, work with all these communities. From the health perspective, you can do communal fundraising. Because yes, we, we, it's a social network is very strong. We can do help each other. And they use traditional covenant system. Because what they say or show on TV, it is, it is, it is. But when I go to the traditional village gathering, and then they bring the food, whew, McDonald's is also there. So it's very interesting. So there is a breakdown of this system. And then the third one, there's a need for community training on eating smart. All right? And this is my argument to the Pacific Island nutritionists. You are telling us and you're looking at processed food as if that is the evil. We cannot change that. Processed food is here and here to stay. But if we look at countries who eat rice a lot, they live to almost 100 years. If we look at countries who are eating processed food, who are consuming processed food, they do have a high, high lifespan. So the, the issue here is like we find the middle ground here and eat smart. How do we make nutritious food? And then bring this through the cultural, the lens, looking at this through the lenses of culture. And I would like to end this with this. I saw it at Oliver, the organic uh, shop between Newcastle and, um, and Sydney. And I walk inside, well, I'm not really a fan of organic. It's healthy, but it's not delicious. You see my point? And they say, like, people are fed. 
by an industry who pays no attention to health. And we are treated by industry or by the health people who pay no attention to food. I tell you, in, in the Pacific Island countries, some countries only have nutritionists. And then they say, we prioritize preventative measures against non-communicable diseases. But there is only one nutritionist. Well, that's, that's it, uh, brothers and sisters and cousins. Thank you very much. Now